Welcome to Grog Talk. I'm James. I'm Dan. And if you notice, there's a, yet again another little figure in our lower screen here. And Dan, why don't you uh, introduce our special guest? Absolutely. So today we're very excited to have as a special guest Daniel Collerton, the author of the well-known and beloved Aurelian City and Rising of the Dark scenario from White Dwarf back in the 1980s. And so uh, we're going to have a lot of questions for him yes, uh, about yes. the city. So. More than he thought. Yes, and, I, and more than he thought. I've done my research. <laughs> I know more. About, I know more about your D and D play probably than you do at this point. Well, that, I quite possibly. <laughs> so, so welcome, Daniel. And, and by the way, where are we at today? Well, you we're going to start at the Griffin Inn in Aurelian. In Aurelian, um, yes. And uh, we're going to hang out with Timmy Sage a little bit. Yes. And I think we're going to try to head over to the Affidaff Fork. Affidaff Fork. Daniel, can you help? Aff- yeah. Half at the fork. Half at the fork. fork. That's uh, like a fork almost. That's interesting. Right, because I hear they have happy hour. A two for one. Two for like one. That. You bring in one orc head and you get two beers. That's burning. awesome. So That's we got, my kind of So place. in between the Griffin Inn... And after that fork, we're going to have to go out and find some orcas. That's right. Or, that's right. Well, that could that's be a random monster. That could be our. Well, we haven't done orc as our random monsters. We so that would that would be good. So, so Daniel, thank you for uh, joining us. Um, you know, as we were talking before the show, there's a lot of uh, not only nostalgia but an appreciation for a lot of the work that was done, not only here in the states but in the UK, uh, particularly White Dwarf and your contribution. So maybe just real quick, you could. Uh, tell us how you got in the hobby back in the day, and and uh, then we'll start and, from there. And, and can I actually oh, hijack this for a quick second? Because sure. I don't know, because he may need to have his memory uh, refreshed. I am aware mm-hmm. that in mm-hmm. August or September of 1980, in White Dwarf number 20, there is announced a Fiend Factory competition. Uh, are, right. you, are you familiar with this? I am, yeah. Was that, yeah, was that, so was that the starting point? That's the first evidence I have of you appearing at White Dwarf. He's going to win. So there's a little competition. Okay. You've got a name. So you the Flyman, the, what is it, the, the North Fly, the Fly Mage, the Sand Fly, and the Fly Guard. And, and all you do is you have these pictures of these monsters and the names. And the competition is to, um, to um, uh, create the monsters, describe them, flesh them out. Right. And... Well, you could take it from there, because I assume you see this article. Yeah, you saw this and you you responded. Yeah, yes, yes. Well, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. Um, yes, yeah, so the the Flyman. Ah, uh, when was that? That was 1980. Did you say? Yeah, it was the August so, September 1980 issue. I'd, I'd been playing D and D for about three years by then. Um, and reading White Dwarf and being really quite impressed by it. Um, and I'd always liked writing. Um, I'd always uh, enjoyed stories, writing stories. Um, and I also found the, the technicalities, I think, of D&D very intriguing, very um, engrossing. Um, so the idea of being able to write a story uh, in a technical system um, was very attractive. Um, so I wrote a, a series of descriptions of the flymen, um, the different character classes and their roles, and at the same time 
designed a scenario, which they hadn't asked for, but I, I'd liked writing stories, so I wrote it, sent it in, um, and hoped I might get an honourable mention, so I was really quite surprised <laughs> when, uh, when they said I'd won, um, and, and then published it, and also published the uh, scenario, The Hive of the Hrill, which I'd, I'd also written to go alongside it. And that kind of was the, uh, that's the one. Um, and that was really the beginning of, of my kind of publishing career, which, such as it was. Which, which, what, Matt, which art, which wrote? Oh, so this is, I had, so um, in White Dwarf number 23, okay. the, the fly men and the hive of the hurl appear. Uh, and the adventure and the monsters was not only was it, did it win the competition, his monsters? And not only did right. they publish the adventure, which as Dino's already pointed out, they didn't even ask for the adventure, and they went ahead and published it. It then makes it into the best of White Dwarf scenarios number two. Yeah, so okay. that, that's how, how highly they thought awesome. of the adventure. Well, and, and the only reason we have to explain things, because not only do our live uh, pot, you know, live cast here on YouTube, but we also do a podcast. So if we show things to you and, you, and we say, yeah, people don't, uh, who are listening in the car or on the, on the subway wouldn't know that. So don't mind me if I interject. because people tube. Are, The tube, yes. The tube? That's right, yes. Over, in, over our friends in the UK. <laughs> so maybe, Dan, you could, because um, I sort of hijacked the, uh, your chronology, could you talk a little bit about how you discovered D and D. You said you've been playing for about three years, so it sounds like around roughly 1977 or so you got into it. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how you discovered the game. Um, I discovered in the um, sixth form study room, so that's about um, high school, end of high school, I think, in America. Um, and uh, previously, I've been a war gamer, so um, kind of classic war gaming with small figures moving around or tanks or or similar. Um, and then in the, the corner of the study room, there was one of the, the cool kids in the year above me with a, a large sheet of graph paper drawing stuff. Um, so I said, well, what are you doing? Um, and he said, oh, it's this new game come over from the States called Dungeons and Dragons. And that was the original um, little box set. Um, with the, the four books in the box. Um, I thought, oh, this looks interesting. Had a look, um, ordered a copy, which I think took about three weeks to arrive, uh, and um, started playing it with the, the members of the wargaming group at school. Um, I was always the dungeon master. Oh. Uh, <laughs> and... Uh, And uh, we just kind of gradually developed stories, developed the characters, mainly piggybacking on scenarios that other people had, had devised. Um, and then Advanced Dungeons and Dragons came along. Um, used to have to bicycle to a shop 20 miles away to buy a copy. <laughs> That's a long bicycle ride. <laughs> In those days, pre-internet, pre-Amazon. Um, And then you get the you'd get the new volume and you'd comb through it. Uh, you'd um, you'd order fanzines from the states, which would take a month to arrive, and were photocopied articles that people had sent in and then were stapled together, mm. posted over. 
Um, so it's, a, it's a, a little cottage industry, I think, <laughs> certainly in the UK. And, and it's, it's clear from your Aurelian adventure, you can tell the influence that White Dwarf had on you. So, you know, over here yeah. in the States, I th- you know, White Dwarf was, I think, sometimes available, but yeah, I, I think it was, most it was of rare. us, yeah, most of us didn't really pay that much attention to it. We read Dragon Magazine, and I'd, and yeah. I'd like, maybe you could tell us a little bit about how it was over there. Was was White Dwarf basically the magazine, and then Dragon Magazine was something you didn't see that often? Um, yeah, you could get Dragon Magazine. I subscribed for a bit, Um uh, but White Dwarf was certainly the magazine in the UK. Um, before that, there were a couple of fanzines, but nothing professional. Um, now, Games Workshop, who were the publishers, they had started their first shop, which was one of the very first, if not the very first, games, role-playing games shop in the UK. Um and they had a fanzine which they published on the back of that quite regularly. And then they established White Dwarf, and that, that really became the go-to magazine for people. So if you wanted to, to read about Dungeons & Dragons or the role-playing games, certainly if you wanted to write, um, that tended to be where you went to. Um, a few years later, there was a TSR UK magazine established, but that never really took root in the way that White Dwarf did at the time. Is Imagine Magazine you're talking about? Yeah. Right, yeah. yeah. Right, so, and, and I should let you know, we need to let Dana know, because Dana says he has a stash of stuff in the attic, I think. Oh, Is that oh. correct? So, That's right. Some of this stuff, you need to know. Are you, are you going to publish his address now? This is more than he bargained for. He didn't want people to, like, hunt him down for old copies of stuff like it's that. A, it's a trick. Yeah, it's a trap. This is, this is why I said I, knew, I should have blocked your email. You should have, you know, because we need to let you know now, with the so-called, I don't know if you're familiar with this old-school revival, where people like James and myself, who really hadn't played for close to 30 years, right. so many of us are now getting back into it. A, a lot of the stuff that you may have, I need to alert you, might, might be quite valuable. So, I mean, I, you're right. talking about, you know, the old Games Workshop. I don't know if you're talking about, like, the Allen Weasel and things like that. A, a yeah. lot of, these could be, you know, I, I know you've done a review of Starstone. A lot of these things are now quite valuable. So I yep. just feel we should alert him that he right. might have a treasure trove in just, his attic. Just in case someone reaches out to you like us and says, hey, let me take all that old stuff out of your attic for you. Don't... Uh Wait, that's Check us. eBay. Well, you, just, oh. you just gave him our line. Wait, why did I tell him that? That's right. I'll help you move. That's right. I'll help You're you moving? clean out. Yeah. You don't even have to pay us. Just yeah, give us we'll, what's we'll in these boxes. We'll clean out your attic. That's we'll right. We'll fly to... We're, we're in the neighborhood. That's aren't, right. we in, aren't we in Newcastle? It's, well, our geography has been proven to be completely hard. Right. We may so just find our... I think we're there next month. It's a day month. trip. So... Um, so... Uh, oh, go ahead. Well, I guess just to, to add a little color to it, we actually have bats in our attic. Ah. They nest in the attic and they haven't been in there for about 20 years. Oh. So you might get authentic bat-encrusted mm. original. Finally. Well, that, you know. Well, it's all about selling it from Daniel Collerton's attic. Right. Official bat guano. Official bat. You know, it could increase the value. That's a comp- spell component. Giant bats. Yeah, it's all, it's all there. So this- I'm sure someone would pay extra for it. You know, people, they, right? People, rock stars wipe their face with the towel and the people want Pay 50 yeah, that's charming. Yeah, it's charming. Guano-laden event, you know, right. it's magazines. old school, literally. Now, Dana, what, what I've got next from you is, I think, in June or July of 1982, in White Dwarf number 31, you do you 
have a mini adventures published, right? In search of a fool. Do you recall that? that? <laughs> your, 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 your name is in fact, your name is in fact, uh, is on there, right? Daniel College. And, and you had, uh, you created what is, and I'm going to mispronounce this. One of the, uh, members of my group got it right, but it's the day wine. It's not Sid. It's S I D H E. But I think you Dynashi. And yeah. uh, so he publishes Adventure, and I believe these, the Dynashi were based upon what some sort of Irish, a Gaelic, sort of yeah. mythological. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so they're the, the Irish fairies, but not fairies in the small and charming sense, but uh, an altogether older and darker and magical uh, race. Uh, who live in the the earth of Ireland, uh, keep themselves to themselves, but occasionally visit mortal people, generally to no good end for the mortals. Now, I have a bone to pick with Daniel about with these, uh, the day on sit. So, so we're ending. Is this what's Yeah, this is, yeah, this, this is, is it, right. Okay, okay. Because he gave them psionics, which forced me to learn about psionics. Oh, I see. I, had, I knew nothing about psionics. I'd never played with psionics, right. but they had them. And that's why I was asking you, I think, about with the mind oh, blast gotcha. or whatever. Oh, gotcha, I gotcha. Now you okay. know I was asking you about that, yeah. psionics. I had, to, uh, I had to learn about those. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so, you know, at this time, and what I thought was interesting is uh, I had just sort of assumed that you had some sort of established role at White Dwarf, because you were so prolific with the amount of things that were being published by you, but it sounds like you were you were a fan. You submitted a lot yeah, of stuff. Yeah, very much, very much. And so are most of the other writers. Um, people wrote for, for love, really, because they didn't pay you anything, really. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> a very, very small amount. Um, but people like Phil Masters and Marcus Rowland um, and the other, the other regular writers just wrote. Um, I think the, there were no permanent full-time members of staff. Um, most of the people like Ian Livingstone had other roles at um, Games Workshop. There was something that people were um, pretty much doing in their spare time. Um, all of the artwork was commissioned in. I don't think they had any in-house um, illustrators at that point. Um, so it was a I suppose in some ways a, a, a collective endeavour of, right. of people who were, were interested rather than a, a purely commercial one. I think it, it transformed itself late and became extremely commercial um, and really just uh, an advertising forum for Games Workshop and their approaches. But um, in the early and middle years, there was, it was very much people just sharing an interest and, and doing it because they enjoyed doing it. Yeah. And, and and so how far were you in New, were you in Newcastle at the time and uh, yes yeah yeah so how, I was in Newcastle and so as 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 James has mentioned we're geographically challenged so how so Games Workshop I assume was was based out of London right Is that, yeah that's right? right so how far that's were you so it, were you getting to London did you ever get to meet any of these people back in the day uh, not back in the day it was two hundred and fifty miles. Um, so well, you had a bike. Uh, I that's right, you had a bike. You went twenty. <laughs> you on the way to the shop. You just keep going. Just right? keep going. Be there, get there, and have four yeah. or five days. Um, and um, and people rarely spoke on the telephone then, um, because you paid for each individual call. So right. most things are just done by letter, handwritten letter. 
Okay. Or eventually I kind of got a typewriter, so typewritten letters, but, but that was it. Um, I did move down to London um, probably about 1982, so around about the time, in fact, just after I'd written Aurelian. And I went around to the, um, uh, the production offices um, just to just to meet people and, and kind of have a look at the plans and, and such like. Um, and it turned out to be uh, a corner of a warehouse with about three desks. <laughs> the emperor has no clothes. <laughs> You're right. Thing. Never meet your heroes. That's right. <laughs> so it's like, oh, you know, we all have this vision. The, the people were very nice. Sure. So it was obviously kind of um, <laughs> not a professional publishing outfit, which right. was publishing a lot of different titles. Right. It was... The people who who did it um, in the corner of their warehouse for pleasure. Right. Well, well, then you found out why you weren't being paid. That's right. That's right. <laughs> they, were, they weren't spending it on the building. And That's right. You were upset. That's right. right. The Games Workshop pool. <laughs> That's right. The masseuse and everything. Uh, That's why I'm not getting paid. The exactly. bathing suit in the pool. So the, ne the next thing I've got from you. Yeah, sorry. This is... Yeah, I hope uh, I can remember this one. Yeah. <laughs> the, 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 this, is, this is your life. This is your D&D life. This is your life. I mean, I didn't realize we were going here. This is amazing. Good job, Dan. <laughs> Thank you. Now, I love this one because then this is in White Dwarf number 34, which is most well known for Paul Vernon's Troubles at Amber Trees. But mm. hidden away in the Arcane Armory is the Demon's Knife, a weapon by Daniel Collerton. And, I, and mm. I love the Demon's Knife. I'll tell you, if you don't remember, you remember the Demon's Knife? I don't. Okay. No. Oh, you're not. You can't, can you forget this one? Somebody's wiped my mind. I must have encountered a beholder or something. <laughs> well, this this one makes an appearance in Aurelian. That's how I know about it. And when you stick it into the victim, it shoots blood out of the hilt. So there's just like, a, as best I can tell, there's a fountain of blood. Yeah, it's like a sieve that just yes. shoots it out of there. <laughs> exactly. So what's your mental state in 1982 that you're designing weapons that? Uh, Leech blood like out of you. Yes, that's right. That we approve. That's right. We're, we're fine with it. We're just curious. Um, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. And, and again, we won't. I, we when you corresponded with us uh, via email as opposed to letter, which would have taken nine months for us to get this uh, set right. up. Um, mm -hmm. Your professional background is, uh, you know, in psychology apparently. So, you know, if you were to examine yourself now when you designed these weapons, what would you say about yourself now? You know, would you be concerned about your well-being <laughs> that you're designing weapons? That are, it's that a, it's a good outlet. Oh, yeah. I see. If you had been your son. That's right. That's right. you'd found the demon's knife written right. up in the guy's room. Well, it could be worse. Plunging not, into various victims. It's not that's drugs. Right. It's not pornography. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Uh, a homicidal well, maniac. It's, it's a good point, though, because I think there is a, um, always a tension uh, within all role-playing games between the, the reality of, of what you're doing and the, the enjoyment you get from a game. So I think virtually everybody who would play um, would never, ever stick a knife into somebody which would then exsanguinate them. Yeah. Um, and I think that is... Um, part of the attraction for many people is that you can you can play a role which isn't yourself. Uh, you can do things which you would be horrified, traumatized by if it ever happened in real life, um, and then you just go back to your normal life. So I think that that is one of the great attractions uh, for people. Oh yeah. 
I don't know, we were running, and I ran Citadel by the sea, and we had this character that fell down the steps and was mangled and right. laying there. And I'm describing this, and then immediately everyone's like, all right, you know, loot the body, <laughs> do this. Yeah, when, when somebody dies a horrible death in D&D, the first player's thought is not, this is horrible, it's, it's I loot the body. That's right. What, didn't he have that ring or something? Yeah, what did he have? Yeah, it's like when someone's office, at, you know, when they, they leave. Right, when they get fired. You need their, you want their furniture. Yeah, it's I a want their chair. A bunch it's, of vultures. It's, it's very similar to that. And, and um, so just kind of one more segue before you do more It's a Wonderful Life, uh, okay. Daniel Colleton edition. The... Uh, you know, were you around for the Satanic Panic? Obviously, was that? Uh, I mean, I vaguely remember that as a thing. And was it, was, it the same it was in, never in the UK? A big, never a big thing in the UK. Um, it was something that you did read about from the states. Um, I think most most people in the in, in Britain just didn't know anything whatsoever about D and um, D. We don't have that that tradition of, of religion in the UK, yeah. certainly not at that time. It's, it's a bit more evangelical now. Um, so it, it, it never touched the, the general consciousness. And what's you know, so fascinating, again, like Dan said, we kind of, uh, and actually, again, a shout out to Dirk the Dice and Grognard Files. He's, he's done a great thing uh, capturing the UK uh, role-playing experience from back in the day. So for us who are interlopers, who are looking in, it's just been amazing. And But he had a similar experience, kind of like they played up until the late 80s and then disappeared for 20, 25 years and are, yeah. got back yeah. into it a few years ago when we got older and, and had more free time, apparently. Mm. But now, I don't know if you're aware of this, they're using D&D and role-playing games as therapy for people on the autism spectrum and who have social anxiety. Have you heard about this? Uh, is it something you... Uh, you've heard about or know anything more about that? You know, the, the general approach of using avatars, often computer generated, is fairly well established now. Oh, okay. Um, and I guess kind of in a way it's, it's, it's very similar. You're creating an avatar who you can then safely play with, which I guess then goes back to what I was saying earlier. You can, you can have a role do things which would terrify you or traumatize you in real life. Um, and then for somebody with a social anxiety, that could be going to the shops. Um, but because you're doing it in role, you can learn about it, control it, um, practice different ways of doing it, do it again when you fail and eventually succeed. And that then gives you the, the knowledge which you can then put into practice elsewhere. Yeah, it's it, well, quite the knowledge of sticking knives in people, but a similar sort of right. principle. Well, it's baby steps, you know, right? right. You crawl, walk, run. You you talk to the shopkeeper, and right. then you stick them, you that, shiv them. That's wrong. Oh, oh, that's not good. Okay. No, that's wrong. Oh, I was going to step. Your alignment's seven. lawful good. Yes. Okay, let's learn how to be lawful good. Well, if we're run, if we're short, if we have a lot of time, we can ask him about alignment in psychology. I'm sure that will be a, a long conversation. Yeah, I feel quite confident. I'm lawful. I'm pretty confident. I'm lawful neutral in with, real with life. With slightly good tendencies. Well, but we all think we have good tendencies. Yeah, I think I'm so. not sure I actually do. That's true. I think I'd be. Well, we'll, we'll be the judge of that. So I'd, I'd like to ask you, continuing, uh, you know, it, it's your life. So I know in, in 1983, April of 1983, in White Dwarf number 40, you, re, you review Starstone. And, and the reason why I think this is interesting is because I wanted to ask you, because we're getting up to the next big event, of course, is going to be Aurelian, which, which is the main event for us. I'd like to get a set. What I've noticed, I've been getting into the British gaming, and, you know, I'm a big fan. I, I actually... 
I have Starstone now. Don't please don't ask don't me. Judge how, don't ask. Don't judge me. Don't ask how much I paid for Starstone. You said it was. It's not, we're moving on. Slightly expensive. We're moving on. So so you'd reviewed Starstone. You thought very well of it. You gave it very high marks. I know that in Aurelian you make various references to Paul Vernon's Town Planner series. So as you were writing Aurelian, how much were you influenced by Paul Vernon's articles in White Dwarf and, for example, Starstone? These, and, and, you know, uh, Troubles at Ember Trees by Paul Vernon. The sense mm-hmm. I get, these, these milieus are very detailed. You, you don't just have a line about, you know, this is Sam the Baker. These are his stats. It mm-hmm. gives you a lot of information about the characters, different relationships. How much were you influenced by that when you wrote Aurelian? A lot, I think. Um, as I said at the beginning, you know, part of the thing which attracted me was the, the systematic nature and the detail um, and the way you could take a uh, story arc um, but then have, have you know, very precise descriptions of, of articles within it or actions within it. Um, and I, I always I admired that approach, and particularly Paul's work um, was, was uh, I think, exemplary, you know, of that style. Uh, so it, it was a big influence in, in the way I would kind of write. And I think you see that continued. I've run a campaign. It, it didn't last very long because there's a total party kill, but uh, the Pelennor mm-hmm. campaign setting uh, which came later, I think, in Imagine magazine, was very similar. Um, and that, of course, is a British publication. It was very similar in that, you know, you needed to know Sam is having an affair with Mary over here, and it really brings yeah. it all to life. Um, yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I think that, that kind of um, story in a setting was, was kind of quite um, influential, that, that way of doing it. So you might have a story, but you'd have that within a much wider setting, which would then allow you to um, branch off on your own once you'd finished. Right. So Aurelian is is very linear, <laughs> reading it back. Ah. You, know, you, are, you are very pushed but you know, in one direction. Okay, so, yeah, all right, so well, let's talk about that now, because let me, so we're getting to Aurelian now, and let me just... How, let me tell you how I came to discover Aurelian, and thank goodness for the internet age now, because otherwise I, I never would have known about it. So when I got back into the game, I really wanted to discover and read adventures that I had never been exposed to. Uh, not the ones that I had read. I, I, I was starting to discover there was so much more out there than just the, the famous TSR modules. Right. So I did internet research on you know, non-TSR adventures to run, and not surprisingly... Aurelian came up time and time again, which is how I discovered it. And just some of the things that you will find if you Google Aurelian, White Dwarf, you'll find references like Tour de Force remains one of the most popular features from the Halcyon days of White Dwarf, my favorite old school module ever. And these are all different. It's not one person. These are all different people. This Very is not, not Dan. a large not, family. That's right. Large family. Yes. I was going to say, me. DC. Dan. You know, yeah, Dan. I, I wrote this list. This is my description. Or his, I put his, it on the internet. Right. Yeah, so this is what you'll find on the he internet. His, uh, he has his pseudonyms he goes out there. No, that's right. yeah. Very cinematic. Epic. The best serialized city setting before the three adventure paths. I don't even know what three E is. Apparently, there's a third edition of D and D. I don't know what they're talking I about. I don't know what that I is. I don't know what that is. A gamer's jewel. The best of the British contributions to AD and D should have been a standalone module, 
first encountered Aurelian as the centerpiece of a Best Scenarios publications in White Dwarf, Aurelian easily dwarfed the rest of the publication in both scope and quality. The storyline has some grim and tragic elements that seem to have been more popular with British gamers in the early days. Someone else writes, the adventure itself is very good. The city itself is absolutely brilliant. A brilliant written, plot-heavy adventure, clever use of language and names, makes the town seem more real while the adventure itself has a great feeling of impending doom. So just to give you some, you know, how people feel about your adventure. Um, so could, maybe you said it's linear. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that because, you know, to me, the linear aspect makes complete sense. So maybe you could describe why it was, because there's a reason it's linear. And as we might say, a bit railroady, there was a reason mm. for that though, correct? Yeah, so... Partially because if you're going to tell a story, it has to be fairly linear. You need a, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Um, but then for the purposes of publication, because of the size, it had to be broken down into six episodes. Um, and each episode had to remain within a certain area, geographical area. So in order to do that, you, you kind of had to keep people within an area and occupy them within that, that area. Um, so in a sense, that then gives you six chapters. Um, so you have uh, the starting chapters, so the journey. Um, you have the middle chapters, which are the um, dead ends, the false clues, the, the going astray. Uh, and then you have the, the final chapters of the... Um, uh, the crisis and the resolution. Right. I think. So, so that's kind of the, the, the idea looking back. At the time, I just wrote it. So you know, good now, to me. This, this was a monthly publication, right, back in the day? It was. So you had to wait six months to have the whole story. Yeah. People were patient yeah. back then. I don't remember being that patient. It was but a more patient time. Yeah, it was a more patient time. And, and, and so here it is. It first appears in White Dwarf number 42, which yeah. is right, which is going to be in June of 1983, and uh, thank God for eBay. And then you know, because I was able to get all of these copies to 43, 44, 45, 46, and 47, the final one in November 1983. And what I liked about it with the linear, it, the linear didn't bother me at all. And and I can tell you that when I recently ran my group through the Rising of the Dark, the linear caused no problems at all. What was great about it is the party got it. Yeah. Maybe because we're older, they yeah. got that it was supposed to be linear because it, what, what you were, were doing, of course, is you're getting, in, the characters are being introduced to a different portion of the city of Aurelian. It, was, it seemed to me like it was primarily designed, the Rising of the Dark didn't seem to me to be the main event. The city was the main event to be able to use as a yeah. campaign, right? And the adventure was just sort of, you. it almost seems like you just sort of wrote the adventure to, as a way to introduce the characters. Each little mini episode was, oh, you're going to be introduced to the Northwest Quadrant and the Northeast Quadrant. Is that right? Yes, yeah, yeah, very much. So the, I think the story of uh, battling battling against overwhelming odds and uh, fighting through um, darkness and light. That, that, that type of story had always attracted me. Um, and so it was, um, 
how to how to use that to illustrate the city itself and the, the different components of the city. Um, I think the idea came when I just thought Dark Rise, that, that was kind of the beginning of the story. Um, and from that phrase, um, then that, that kind of set me off thinking, well, what would Dark Rise be? How would it impact on people? How would, how would you deal with it? Um, and so that's kind of how I worked it out, mainly with um, one of my fellow um, players, uh, a guy called Dominic McAteer. Um, so we kind of we worked out the story over probably about six months or so. Um, and then kind of I draw a, um, part of the city out um, with pen and paper in those days on graph paper, um, populated with some key characters, um, and then work out how they would fit into the story. Um, so the story very much did develop around it, which is why well, you, you do get a few false ends. <laughs> a few um <laughs> I think they're great. I love the false ends. We are gonna have to we're gonna have to talk about the scepter at some point, right? The the phony scepter yeah. which is so, is wonderful. So did you have it all written and then when you submitted it, the white dwarf said, Oh, we can't do this all in one thing, you have to break it up, or did you know it was gonna be serialized? Well, can you go through the process of submitting this big work? Yeah, like and, and we're in particular were, were you writing this just on your own without even necessarily thinking about oh I'm gonna submit this to White Dwarf? Or were, were you no, doing- so so kind of I'd, um, as you say, I'd written a bit for them previously. So I, I said, might you be interested in a uh, in a city? Because there, there weren't any good cities around um, in in Dungeons and Dragons anyway at that stage. And there's a lot of good ones in in fiction. Yeah. Um, and um, so I said, would you be interested? Um, and they said, yeah. I think they hadn't quite realised how big it was going to be. I don't think I had quite realised how big it was going to be either. Um, but they said, yeah, we we need a scenario to go along with it. It's a bit like um, The Flyman and The Hive of the Thrill. Um, it's it's the, the setting and the story. And that, that very much went along with previous things that they published and their, their kind of style. Um, and... And then I just wrote it and sent it in. There wasn't any real editorial control. Um, they didn't interfere. Um, they didn't grumble. Um, they they just kind of did it. Did they? It was, quite, uh, it was a very, far far easier than academic publishing. I can tell you. <laughs> yeah. Um, so was it, um, it? Did you send the whole thing in complete? It completed, and then they said, "Oh my gosh." This is so much larger than we'd expected. We're going to have to break this up into six. They, were they surprised by the the length of it? Uh, I think they always knew it was going to be a part work. Quite how many parts? Um, they, I don't think they knew. I didn't know either. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I wrote it all. I kind of wrote it over a summer, um, the vast bulk of it anyway. Um, while I was at university, because they had long summer breaks, that's when the bulk of it got written. Um, sent it down, um, and a few weeks later, just got a letter saying, "Okay." 
few weeks later. It was, yeah. That's, that's the life I want, you know? So you started writing it, and then they told you it was okay? Or did you, they tell you it was yeah. okay? But it, it sounded like they, they knew you. You basically yeah. figured whatever yeah. you sent in. They, they knew you. You were trustworthy. They were going to publish it, probably. Uh, they would look at it. Yeah. All right. Yeah. All right. If it had been rubbish, they wouldn't have published it. Yeah. So okay. well, I like to think about that. So yeah, and, and so it's so just a good for when you sent it in, it was it was done. It wasn't. You, or were you writing some of the end of it while they were still coming no, out? No. no, it was all done. It was oh, all nice. done. It all went off in one big thick envelope. Oh, you're you see, you're a dream for a publisher, right. right? They don't have to wait on the next installment. Where is that? It ends. It's like, not like uh, the Game of Thrones guy that you know who's written only some of the books and still has other ones to write. And well, you know, I've noticed from back in the day, a lot of these people they they promise. Don't. This is a lesson. Don't ever promise anything subsequent. Like Starstone, Paul Vernon said. Oh, you know, there, there, I think he said, oh, there, oh, there'll be more. And then, of course, there'll be another adventure. Then I think, you know, it doesn't come. Um, and yeah, I, well, there was going to be an Aurelian too. Oh, really? But then have uh, laws. Uh, there, can, there still can be. There still can be. <laughs> climb up, <laughs> climb up the stairs. Dust off the bat. Uh, you know, encrusted stuff and, and you know and, and imagine and be serious with it, you know when if you do end up going through the stuff in the attic if you have things like the original sketches of Aurelian that mm-hmm. stuff really would be of great interest to yeah. so many people um and so I really encourage you that if if don't assume that that's just junk that no one cares about there's a lot of people who would love to see stuff like that. even if you just scan it and post it online or something they'd love to see it Okay, okay. I'll tell my wife. <laughs> Put her on the job. Well, we said we're going to be in the neighborhood, aren't That's we? That's right. We're, going, we're moving there. So, so um, White Dwarf number 42 is the first one. And I want to ask you about the cover. This cover is considered one of the great covers yeah. for White yeah, Dwarf, it's, it's right? Very good. G- Gary Chalk does it, right? And so I wanted to ask you about it. We're, we, it's the only cover. I believe that is Aurelian. The other ones are different covers. Um, people love this cover. I wanted to get your so do you feel like uh, Gary Chalk captured the concept of Aurelian as, as you intended? Yes, yes, brilliantly. I tried to buy it, um, <laughs> or buy the original artwork. Oh. And in fact, I said, I'll give it my fee. Um, so I could, if I can have the original artwork. Um, but firstly, my fee wouldn't cover it. Um, but secondly um, one of the production staff had already bought it Um, as as soon as it came in I think somebody said oh I'll I'll have that back back in the day back in the day that oh that's too bad because you know what I think would be great still and my understanding is I I didn't know a lot about the illustrator but he's apparently well known is that it would be wonderful to have sort of a bird's eye view of the city itself. That's the one thing that I think would just be awesome uh, to have. So all right, well, so maybe we can ask you then a little bit about the adventure itself. Um, so it is, it is very cinematic. I mean, someone wrote that, and I think that's correct. And I, I can tell you that when I ran the adventure, as I noted, the sort of linear aspect of it was no problem at all. I think the players actually enjoyed it. I and mean, it's funny because they sort of knew at a certain point when someone would say, oh, well, you got to go over here to the monastery, they'd be like, what a shock. It's right across the street. You know, they sort of, <laughs> they, they got it and that didn't bother them at all. I mean, I think they thought it was fun. Um, it, it, is, it is very cinematic. It has a very epic ending if the players, you know, do it correctly. 
Um, and I, I think that's what people like about it is the, the atmosphere, right? You've got, you have, you have an atmosphere of sort of impending doom, correct? Yeah, yeah, sure. I was um, very influenced by the film The Fog, the John Carpenter film. I don't know if you've ever seen it, um, but it's basically about a, a small village and the fog comes in and inside the fog are monsters. Oh, okay. Um, drowned was... sailors. Um, he's, he's the guy who did Halloween uh, yep. as well. Um, oh, the, the, fo- the fog, yes, the, the fog, the fog, yes, yeah. in the seaside town. Yes, now, yeah, that's, mm-hmm. I, I know exactly what you're talking about now. Yep, yep. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so, so that was a, a big influence on the, the atmosphere that I was trying to convey. Um, just kind of darkness with nasty things inside it. Um, the Silmarillion had been out a few years earlier. And uh, the fall of Numenor and the wave overcoming the land. So the the idea of a wave um, destroying everything um, also came into it. Um, And I've always liked happy endings. (laughs) (laughs) Though in the happy, and I I think we should warn our audience here, we we can do spoilers, right? I mean, this was only published in, what, 1983? I think you could talk about it. We can get spoilers uh, after three years, right? Statue of Limitation. So, yeah, stop listening if you don't know the spoilers. So, so, so before we, uh, we've got some chat. We've there are people listening to this. It's not just us three. We've it's got, not just about me. No, it's not just about you. I'm sorry. No, it's okay. I, I asked for some of our chat folks, so want to get through some questions. Uh, some of them have answered. You haven't you haven't touched this stuff in decades. Is that a fair statement? You you're not playing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When did you stop playing? If roughly. Probably after Irelian. I think Irelian was my swan that, song. That was it. You were <laughs> right now. Yeah. Oh wait a minute. Uh, it's uh, your life. 19, the last evidence I have of you uh, in D&D is in April 1984, in White Dwarf number 52, you write an article, Out of the Blue. Sound familiar? No. He's, he's no. Suggest, <laughs> suggested clerical spells you were using in your Aurelian campaign. You uh-huh. were using clerical, you, you required clerics, the spells they could have available were based upon the deity they worshipped. It wasn't just any spell, and you developed some new spells too. And then, so 1984, I think, is the last time I've got you record of you yes. before before you you fell off, you went off the D and D grid. Fell off the D, he went, fell off the map. Yeah. So you haven't played since since the mid 80s, basically. No, no, I played. Um, I, I'd moved down to London, and so um, I'd left. The people in Newcastle who I used to play with, they'd all gone their separate ways as well. Gotcha. Um, and generally it was starting to fall out of favour at that point. Um, uh, and electronic games are starting to take over. Um, particularly in the UK, Warhammer was becoming the, the kind of goal, go-to um, game with Games Workshop pushing that very hard. And so the publications on D&D within White Dwarf start to drop away. Um, and I had kind of started a new job, um, and time was, was kind of fairly short. Right. Um, so it was, it was a, a kind of series of different things. Um, I did play some Baldur's Gate, um, and that was first out, the, the computer-based... Yep. Um, Based uh, version of D and D, 
Well, but that was it for, for dungeon mastering. Okay. The, um, uh, and so Menyon, one of our folks, he really wanted to run it, but he was always had a challenge with the Middle English. He's a, he's a British person. I don't know where he's from. And he asked, where are you originally from? You know, he's trying to pinpoint your accent. Where in... in oh, okay. Uh, so I'm a Geordie, um, which is somebody who's born on Tyneside. So I was born... Um, this, is, this is a bit minute detail for, for those of you who aren't in England. Well, I was born in a, a place called Wall's End. Um, it's called Wall's End because it's the end of the Roman Wall which, uh, going back to Game of Thrones, is what the wall is based upon. Okay, interesting. Um, so I was born in Wall's End. I uh, lived most of my life in uh, Newcastle. I uh, went away to university, uh, then went down to London, and then came back to the northeast. I've been back here for 30 years. Yeah, so it's, it's right up there. Uh, and, and if I could follow up on Menion's sure. question on the topic, because that, that is something that makes it really very interesting. It does, I think, scare away some people from running it. I think it was fun to use the language, but, but we know this. So uh, Daniel developed basically a lot of, you know, almost its own language sort of. It's got a lot of specific terms in here. It actually has a glossary. So that you, yep. like, that you so you can figure out what the translation of what the words are. Could you tell us a little bit about your desire to create that that Aurelian language and what is it based on? Because I've heard some some people say they think there's some Dutch in there. It seems to me like Gaelic would maybe be a pro- I don't know. So maybe you yeah. could talk about so it. So it's it's kind of old Middle English that is based upon, um, and the influence was Tolkien, of course. Um, I always quite like the, the bit at the end of The Lord of the Rings where they, all the appendices are um, with all the, the different languages. Um, one of the things I've never liked in fantasy is um, modern English. Um, I think it, it doesn't fit with the setting. Um, and so I like, I like something which would um, so it's be appropriate into the setting as I, I visualize it. And language is a very important part of that. So if you're not looking at it, or imagining it, then, then you're hearing it. So um, things like Hefet of Ork or, or the Gaifun, um, I think just, just set it aside as, as something different. Um, and I think it, it does make people think a little more of what... Um, or where they are, so it's it's not the griffin, it's not the head of orc, which which could be just down the road. It is the gryphoon, it is the the heifer of orc, um, and that's not just down the road. So, so I think that that's probably what influenced me. It is what uh, the editor said, and um, in retrospect, the only thing they would have changed is the language, because I think you're right, it does put off some people. Oh, but I, you know, well, I, yeah. you don't have to use it. I mean, yeah. I like it. I mean, you don't have to use it. I mean, you know, we use it at times, but then I would also say the, you know, I would say the monastery, whatever. So I came and went, but I don't mm-hmm. know why you would exclude it. It's op- you could, it's optional. Well, and I think it's uh, a thing in time. Again, obviously, the people you played with were from your area. A lot, some were from your area, and some were not. And so it wasn't completely foreign, but yet it provided a, like you said, a tinge of otherness, which you don't have when you speak your common uh, language. The, the hard part, of course, is 
use, not using it as an impediment. And I think that goes back to the whole style of gaming back then. The more challenging, it was almost like a, a badge of honor. Oh, this game's complicated enough. Now we'll have to translate for folks to go through it. You have to give them a glossary. Whereas today, um, there's folks who are like, we got to make this as simple and accessible as possible to all kinds of folks, or we need to make it as re- quote unquote realistic. And, and, you know, language, of course, you know, they, uh, my family's Greek, and, you know, you translate Greek sayings. There's a saying in Greek, the day laughs at the night's work. Which doesn't sound, I mean, you get it, but it's not, doesn't have the same, yeah. when you say it in the Greek, it sounds good, but you know, the, you still get it. Mm-hmm. But so I, I agree with you having that uh, uh, thing. So, and your, your comment of where you are is just, it's causing a whole bunch of, uh, a whole bunch of comments now there, but I, uh, let's see what else. Oh, can I real quick, did, yeah, you, did you use the language, you, sounds like you used that language, when you ran your Aurelian campaign with your players, it sounds like. You used that language, and, and if so, were the players fine with it? Did they get into the spirit of it? And there they grumbled. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's life of a DM, right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> you have this immersive world. You're trying to really yeah. set them apart. I remember yeah. one of our DMs back in the day, he would take scrolls, and he'd age the parchment and wax them and hand yeah. them out. And it, it was a lot of work, and so yeah. we at least tried to, you know, we're like, just tell us how much, what scroll did I get? No, no, no. You must open magic. You must open the scroll. I'm like, okay. Yeah, well, you can be like, so I'd like to go to the head of orc, and then Dan's he's no, the no. DM. He's like, they don't what? That, they that, look at that you. Head of orc, huh? Huh? Right. Sir, that, they start grumbling. You're, you're a foreigner. Hey, um, so yeah. uh, our our dear friend, the Chamberlain, most august potency from Australia, David. Had how did you come up with the bribe bribe level idea? How did what was the thought of that? Do you recall what your um, that mechanic and why you came up with it, because it is very interesting. Yeah, so I think one of the one of the big influences on Aurelian was Venice. I was reading quite a lot about Venice at the time. Okay. Um, and the idea of a, a post-imperial city, um, which was ruled by an oligarchy. Um, and didn't really do anything apart from bicker amongst itself. I thought that was that was quite a, an interesting setting. Um, and how you would operationalize that. So I guess, again, it goes back to the system. Um, so if you're going to do something in, in D&D, you need a system for it. If you're going to have corruption, you need a system within which to be corrupt. Right. Um, so um, bribe level is, is where that came in. It's brilliant. And it's really brilliant. And if I come on the bribe, le- bribe level, so it, it, somebody had noted online that they viewed the bribe level as sort of representative of the feel of the city, that it suggested, not suggested, it indicated that anyone in Aurelian pretty much can be bribed, right? Maybe, maybe a couple people can be, but pretty, much. pretty much. Pretty much. And maybe can I describe... There are a few characters, if you look, who, who are incorruptible, but not so many. Which is why I always give your characters in a one-shot some spending money. Right. Because they may need bribe money. And, and if I could just... I'd like to describe Aurelian as Daniel described it when you enter, to give you a feel for this. Because a very important thing, I think, is not simply the impending doom, which is wonderful. Uh, how often do you say 
say that. But <laughs> it's, but it's also the the sense of Aurelian, the city in decay, right? The city that had once been great and is now in decay. So the walls are a crumbling earth rampart, rising ten feet from a sluggishly flowing, rubbish-filled moat. Uh, there are farmers bringing produce to Aurelian and streams of potters carrying night soil out to the field. The street is a good six inches deep in mud. Animal droppings and the contents of chamber pots that are emptied from the uppermost stories of houses. The smell is an amalgam of all of the above, plus the odors of unwashed bodies. The streets are narrow, winding, and crowded with carts, animals, beggars, costermongers. Um, and so you, you really create, right as you enter, the sense I get is the DM is supposed to create this image of a city in, in decay, correct? Oh, yeah. yeah it sounds, sounds like Queens, where I grew up, but okay. Except or for Queens. Or Queens. That's right. right. <laughs> That's an American reference. Yeah. That's right. That's but exactly. So you, you really, and one of my players during the game asked somebody, wait, you know, what's happened to this city? He got it, right, that it was a city in decay, mm-hmm. but that, that was important for you, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think faded grandeur is... is Always more attractive than grandeur itself. It's it's a more complex setting. Um, so I said, um, one of the other influences was um, again Tolkien. He's big influence on everything. Sure. Um, and Minas Tirith, and the the idea of Minas Tirith having um, fallen from the, the the kind of pinnacle, then right at the end rising again. Uh, so I think the. Rise and fall is, is a, a good narrative structure. And, and that every, every age is um, but a shadow of the previous one, and, and that you know, it, it restores, but it's not quite the same. There has to be some real rebirth that has to occur uh, in, in some of it, it seems to be the thing. And, and yeah, that, that, the illustration, that artwork is so telling, because you can see the grandeur of the architecture, but it's clearly... It's seen better times, so very yeah. evocative, absolutely. And uh, growing up in the northeast of England, there's a lot of that about. <laughs> so and, and, it's, uh, it's not an area which is, has been so well over the last few years, particularly at the time I was writing it. Right. So there's a lot of the um, great buildings of, of the city were decaying. Um, the stone was um, green. Uh, bits were falling off. There was scaffolding up, so um, it was it was based on partially living in Newcastle, and then of course living beside the Roman Wall. That's all ruined. Um, so I guess the the sense of empires having fallen and passed away is 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 very British or right. northeast British. Right, and it's right in front of you too. It's it's a visible thing. It's not like it's stored away in a museum. It's you, you pass it uh, as part of your daily course. Yeah, interesting. Well, and what I liked about it was uh, Daniel notes that there's really there's two significant government entities or two significant entities in Aurelian, the council and the mob. Yeah. So the mob, right? The mob in Aurelian plays a significant role. It's like it's, you, you, you mm-hmm. describe it like an entity that acts and reacts, right, and checks the council, correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so... So that, that kind of came from French revolutionary um, experiences. Um, and then you have the monarchy, uh, the court, um, and then eventually when you pass the limit, you have the mob. And then the mob 
takes over for a period, um, and then the uh, uh, the government reestablishes control. So I think the um, uh, the ebb and flow, um, the uh, nobility and the common person, uh, has always been a uh, an interesting um, dynamic. I've always liked uh, action and reaction, or force and opposition. And, and, and that was the only part. So I ran it in an afternoon. And, and really, if, if anyone is thinking of running Rising of the Dark, you really want to set aside enough time to do it. Um, you know, we're older now. We uh, People have respons- more responsibilities than we did back in the day. And so I, I really didn't have time to stretch it out that much. But the, the one area that I had to skip over was where the, mo- the mob chases the characters. The characters right. are fleeing from the mob. Um, and so you've got the dark rising, which is this, you know, like the fog, right? This dark fog rising. It's actually, at some point, comes over the it's, city. It's evil incarnate, basically. I mean, it's it's uh, the way he describes it in there. It's all, you know, it doesn't have a physical manifest. It manifests through the, the corruptible uh, people in the city, but it is the, you know, almost a semi-tangible presence of evil and that it, it uses it. So yeah, it's pretty awesome. Yeah, and it's, it, it really does create impending doom because it comes over the walls, you're being closed in. And the for people who are not familiar with it, the characters have been given, uh, it's an old Aurelian saying, which they have to figure, it's the way to save the city, and they've got to figure out what it means. Mm. Um, and uh, if they do, they're, they're heroes of the city, they're legendary, and, and if they don't, well... But we know how it ends. That's right. Get some D6 out. Yeah, my, my, and I can let you know, my player characters, like, they're very experienced players. They're very good. Uh, they were successful. So, uh, oh, good. Yes, they, good. They, they, they did make some interesting, I don't know how well you remember it. I know you wrote it, but it's been a long time. They did make some interesting things. They, they killed the wizard. You know, they're supposed to go to the wizard. And the wizards, whoops, they thought the wizard was the baddie, right? So the, two, the, the demon and the devil are attacking the wizard, and they decide to kill the wizard. Um, that sounds about right. Yeah, <laughs> right? Um, and so that, that was a little bit difficult um, uh, to, to get them out of that mess, but they, they were able to get out of it. But they were successful. And it, so it was, it was an epic ending, and one of my players mentioned that. Online, he posted in response to the game, so many adventures just sort of end meh. Right. This one ended in an epic way. And I, I really think if you're going to run particularly a one-off adventure, to have some sort of climactic end, right. other than just simply killing the big bad, something really more epic is, is really nice. And this is where the flavor of the setting allows that to happen, which, again, you need enough time to. Now, yeah. to be fair, you, you had played for six hours, right? Oh, Yeah. I mean, yeah. it's not like you, nowadays they do two-hour sessions and they think, ooh, that's a lot. I mean, you're still getting a, a – it may not be like back in the day when we spent – you know, we got up in the morning and played all till we passed out. But it's six hours. is still a decent chunk of time. Oh, yeah. And what was great about it, and I should show you this too for our viewers and for you, Dan, too, is so the map from the last one, I got it laminated. Um, Move it up a little bit. Oh. Uh, back. I'm sure, see, it's got a glare. Oh, and there, there, there it is. There it is. So I had to buy that this issue three times. The first time I bought it, this you know was a centerfold, of course, and it was removed because yeah. somebody took it out. The second one I bought, I just needed to, the magazine. And then I'm like, oh, I want to laminate it, so I bought a third one to get it laminated. And um, some of the things I love, I could just mention some of the things I absolutely loved about the adventure. 
So I love right at the beginning and, and you know the graveyard. If if I, I'm not going to speak Aurelian, if that's okay. That's okay. Like the 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 graveyard, 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 graveyard. He tells you how to pronounce these all, so yeah. I have no excuse. You could do. I should if you did a YouTube video of all the gloss. You know, Daniel, Daniel, yeah. and Aurelian. He that should just be do them yeah. all. Or maybe one of those. What like you learn languages? Oh, speak and say. He could do. A, we could have a little thing. The graveyard, and you just click the on graveyard. it. That, yeah, and just click on. It. That would be great. Right. We should, that should be part of our new uh, merchandise that we're going to do. That'd be awesome. <laughs> so it would happen. <laughs> As, as, the, as the party is entering Aurelian or trying to enter Aurelian, the, the way is shut, so to speak. The gates are closing. And in this graveyard here, you've got this graveyard keeper, what, the, uh, the, shunt, the shunterman or something? Shunterman. Shunterman is waving at you. But, you know, he's wearing a death mask. He's all in black. He's in a graveyard waving you. You're, 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 you can't go into the city. The dark is rising. you got this guy who seems... She's pretty lawful evil, right? Or, you know, not a nice guy. Waving you in, what do you do? Well, I had given my players, which were pre-generated characters, certain spells I thought would be useful in a really right. like suggestion. Well, so my players aren't stupid. They're like, oh, well, we go up to the guard and we suggest, I cast suggestion, let us in. So they get in. <laughs> so they were able to bypass some of these more mm. memorable things. Um, if you could talk a little bit about. The scepter a lagu, the scepter of law. Because yeah, yeah. I, Lau. scepter a lau. I I thought that was just wonderful. Uh, the players, they just thought it was hilarious. What one of the players said, even before it was discovered, it was a phone. He said, "You know, I'm suspicious about this scepter." So you know, if you could talk a little bit, if you remember about the scepter, because it sounded to yeah, me just yeah, like sure. you had a lot of fun, probably writing a little twinkle in your eye, perhaps when you wrote that part. Yeah. So, um, trying to think without giving away too many spoilers. So, um, one of the one of the characteristics of fantasy is, or in particularly D and D, is items of great power. Um, you know, relics and, and such like. Um, and a, an awful lot of fantasy stories are dealing with a, a ring of power or a, a wand of power or um, boots of power or whatever. Um, and and I think it, it, it can get a little bit boring <laughs> if, if everything is, is a massively powerful thing. Uh, and I was also um, influenced by, um, again, medieval Christianity, because that's, that's where the, the chanterman comes from, people in, in chantries who would sing the songs for the dead. Um, and there's a lot of fake relics around in, in medieval Christendom. Uh, so I thought it might be quite nice to have a, a fake relic in uh, Irelian as well. Uh, and and the, the scepter became the fake relic. And so it was, well, how do you get that into the story? Because um, there was a way of trying to, to get the monasterium uh, somewhere that the, the characters would go to. Um, and so I kind of slightly shoehorned it in um, by trying to get the, the book um, or a way to destroy the book. Uh, and so that's that kind of was where the idea came from. Uh, then you had to think, well, how would how would a fake relic manifest itself in, in D&D? 
uh, well, somebody would have a spell to make it look a not a fake relic. Um, and who would do that? Well, that would be Zotokwan. Um And so kind of then, then just kind of the logic took over. It, 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 it was great. I, my, my player characters, you know, because you suppose you expect that they're going to, you know, uh, strike the book with the scepter. They were poking the book. <laughs> And I'm like, eventually, I'm just like, it breaks. They're like, hey, we were just poking it. I'm like, just no, it breaks. I got to move on. Because right, they're going to sit there and go. Right. They're a very good, they're a smart party. You know, they're, being, they're just sort of touching it. And I'm like, no, it breaks. Uh, enough already. Um, you always hit things. That's right. In fantasy, you never poke. That's right. You always. Hit as hard as you can. Oh, but no, our players nowadays, no, no. Our players, they check for every trap. They're just poking. They're so, they're overly cautious. Well, they, they um, you know, because Dan pulls out all these old modules, whether it's Judge's Guild or White Dwarf or uh, before that, um, some of the Flying Buffalo things you've done. Yeah, Dun- uh, Dungeoneer, Dungeoneer, the old fanzine. Yeah. Uh, you know, they're, they're wh- wh- they run the gamut of completely gonzo funhouse, you know, Make almost nonsensical to rich, you know, such as Aurelian. So they, they, the default perspective is everything is bad, must check everything. And so, you know, they, they have, everyone has a 10 foot pole, everyone's tapping and searching it. A room like a normal room takes 45 minutes for them to get through. And so uh, we, we have to work with them to go, all right, come on, this is just a room. No, 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 we don't believe you. Um, so one of the questions we had online is, so be- before you got in your profession, were you a, an English literature major, or medieval history, or is this just an interest of you as a, as a youth? No, it's just an interest, really. So um, I was a scientist. I did um, maths, physics, and chemistry. Um, and then I went to university to do physics originally okay. and switched to psychology. But I always enjoyed English, and I particularly always enjoyed the the writing, and I loved reading. Um, that was really what I spent most of my time doing. So I think that that's kind of where the, the literary side, such as it is, comes from. Um, just, just something you said earlier about how long it would take to play. Uh, it was just, well, I guess the idea in mind is, since it took six months to come out, that each episode would take, probably take you six hours mm-hmm. or longer, one or two days um, to play through. Um, so if you work through all the, um, the different combats, um, and the potential blind alleys that people would go through. Right. Um, and then you'd be thinking about that, tiding you over until the, the next episode came out. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, so you really can, to get one session and to do all this was pretty impressive, Dan. Nice job. Well, yeah, and I, I did have to obviously cut out some of the, you know, in, in the first episode, you, all, the amount of combat I had to cut it because there's, you know, you're encountering yeah, many, yeah. many Right, different. the orcs and then the goblins yes. and then there's, the yeah, and, and, and those are big fights too. They're not like, Correct. it's like 20 on 20 against the dwarves and then right. you show up and you could take, uh, you know, that could be three sessions, just that. Oh, and what I thought was great is, so, it, it, you know, because I like to point out some of the things that I really enjoyed. The uh, the Wild Hunt, you brought in, I'm not familiar with it, right? It was in Deities and Demigods, right? But you brought in 
this idea of, of, of the wild hunt. Um, so what happens if a player character, because I was scared to death that a player character joins the wild hunt. Now I'm dealing with, I'm dealing with, I'm trying to, trying to get them to Aurelian and somebody's running off with the wild hunt. But I guess this is just, this is the way it goes, right? It's the way it goes. <laughs> yep. Yeah, um, I think uh, you need to maintain consistency with the story. Um, so if they needed that character, particularly if they are long-standing characters that, that, that people don't want to lose. Um, then I guess the Doin Shi might rescue them and uh, bring them back to the party later on. We found uh, this. We've, do you know this guy? We found this. Was, when you do that, and, and you do, and I, I do like that about the adventure, is that you do give the DM opportunities to sort of help them along. Like you have the two paladins, in the Abbey, yeah. which you say I never used because my party was doing just fine, but they're always mm. sort of hovering, right? And they can yeah. kind of come in and save it. Again, because you're trying to introduce people to the city, you're not necessarily trying to kill them as they walk through the city gates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, that's... Yeah. I think, I'm sorry, I thought I it think, was to kill them. Okay, so uh, thank you, Daniel, for clarifying that. I thought, not to kill welcome them. to the city and now be killed. Horribly yeah. death. Okay, gotcha. Nice. I, I think everybody... Uh, Everybody needs to be heroes in their story or, or in, in the scenario. Um, it is written for basically lawful, basically good uh, people. Um, and and you, if you are going to be a hero, you either succeed or you die gloriously. Right. And those two options are there. Um, but failing ignominiously is just not a very heroic thing. Uh, so I did try and make sure that if they were perhaps a not very experienced party or they didn't have the right skill mix or the right uh, levels, um, that um, there would be the help available. And not so much that they were overwhelmed by it, and so they weren't heroic, they were just kind of following along behind. Um, but if they were nearly winning but not quite, somebody could stand in and, and just help them over the line. So that was kind of the the idea of, of the, um, the the people who might be able to help out. And 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 so and here's a spoiler kind, but but somebody to succeed here, someone's going to have to be a martyr. And I had so much fun writing the character backstory. So I did pre-generated characters because it was a one-off. Mm-hmm. Literally, they they spanned. I've got it. Some of the backstories spanned. Like, this is so, I could call it Daniel the Hero. So it was, it was a, a, a shout out to you. So Daniel the Hero has a backstory, two pages. You should send that to him. Well, you know, so, yeah. yes. and so, what so I, he can get a restraining order on you. Exactly. So to, this guy's crazy. In case you ever go to, go to the northeast of England. Who's this can, guy in my attic? That's right. Just, when his <laughs> so, wife goes up there to the attic to clean it out. You've, you've a, made a homage dudes. to him in a character. You've said he has things in it. And you've, you, yeah, this is, this is all on tape. You know, this is this, completely consistent with people play D&D. We're a little obsessive. Are we not? I'm not disagreeing right? with it. Look, this is so here. Look at the backstories. And so what I tried to do is... I tried to give each of the characters some sort of reason why they would be the one to decide to be the martyr. So, so Daniel, the hero, in, in the backstory that I did is, you think he's a paladin. Ah, 
but you would be mistaken. He's a fallen paladin. He's uh, now a fighter, and he's looking for redemption. There's this half-ogre who had put on a helmet of alignment change and all of a sudden feels terribly guilty about all the people he has killed. killed yeah. Perhaps he's a cleric, a half-ogre. Impressed he's a half-ogre? Yeah, that's awesome. Half-ogre cleric seeking redemption. There is a monk whose parents had been uh, weapons traders with orcs and who fled and feels guilty for all. So I tried to give people back to reasons to be the one who wanted to to be the, the martyr. And I don't know if martyr is the right word here, but the one to, to sacrifice themselves. To die gloriously for the cause. Yes. And it, 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 was, it, was the, it was the monk in my game. It was the monk. He's like, yeah, I'm stepping in. Um, can I mention real quick? You can mention as much, whatever you'd like. Well, he, probably, well, he probably has some things to do better than this. But one of the things I absolutely love, James, you know I love random. Yes, we are random fans. And I love dark. Dark and random. The part I love, absolutely, my, all, my favorite part in this is when the party is standing in the Markyard. Markyard. Yep. Oh, I'm getting out. Markyard. Standing in the yep. Markyard, and the cleric, right, is, is, is above, is suspended in air, and she's haranguing the crowd, right, because she's been overcome by the dark. She points. And she's going to point, I believe, we need a pentagram. So what do we need? Five, I think? Yeah, five, yeah. She's going to point at five people in the crowd. So the crowd is all assembled because they're all panicking. And those poor people that are pointed at are going to rise and they're going to be engulfed in this, this dark flame. And what I love is you actually roll to see if any of the characters are pointed at. You know what their chance of being pointed at? One percent. One in oh please, so high. Oh, that oh. one in two thousand. Oh, jeez. Well, what is great about it is. You actually roll for it. Wow. <laughs> so there's a 1 in 2,000 chance that you will actually. So I, they, Math I said, is fun. I actually told them, I said, there's, a, there's about 2,000 people out there. And I said, well, how do we roll this? I'm like, oh, let me tell you. You first need to roll a die 100. Yep. If you get a 0, 0, that's bad for you. That's right. Then you roll again. And if you get a 1 on a die 20, then, then, then you are rising. And so yes. I just love that sort of idea that, look, I know it's 1 in 2,000, but it could be you. And, and, mm-hmm. it, and it could happen. I can tell you none of them rolled the one in 2000. Oh. Ah, don't worry. The story is okay. You're going to enjoy the story. Okay. They throw something at her. They're hurling missiles. And if I recall correctly, you say anyone who hurls anything at her, all of a sudden themselves get engulfed in the black flame. I had two. Yeah. One guy did it and got engulfed in the black flame. So why not have someone else do it? Yeah, exactly. I have two. <laughs> I have two of my characters that are engulfed in the black flame. So, but maybe you could talk a little bit about because I thought that was just wonderful. That one in two thousand business. Yeah, I guess it's it's having jeopardy in the story without without bringing it to a, a full stop. Um, so, uh, how do you put people at risk without killing them or without without them necessarily dying? Um, so. <laughs> Uh, I do. I've always liked the idea that chance plays quite a big part in in life, um, and I didn't. I didn't want people to be observing the story or observing what was going on with with the dark. I wanted people to be at much at risk as anybody else, uh, so that they were um, invested in what happened. Uh, so I guess it was um, rules like that, which 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 were hoping to draw people in. And even though it was very remote, um, it was still something they had to check out. 
And I, I think it's a lot of fun, even, you know, when it's very remote, it's fun just to sit there and everyone's rolling because you're all sort mm. of wondering, wow, what could this, this could happen. Yeah. And, and I can tell you, so the characters are very smart. So the two characters are in Galt and Flame. I had given backstories, which each, almost all of the characters had a reason from their deity to go on this. Because I, I, I really liked the whole theme of sort of good versus evil. They were all good characters. They all were religious, had religious motivations for going on this to please their deity. One was actually on a quest. And so they were smart. So the two of them prayed to their deities. Now, I'm not a big fan of divine intervention. You know, give me a break. What do do they care about you? But I thought that was a good move in this instance because they were actually there on behalf of their deities trying to save, you know, what I call the northern waste, which is why I said Aurelian, from the forces of evil. So I looked up the DMG. And I did the same. I, I wasn't going to make an actual divine intervention where a deity or animal appears, but, but that would help them out. Because the problem is, you wrote in there that the only way, I think, to get rid of the, the, the black fire was either like an artifact or some sort, or, or, or a demigod status or higher helping you out mm-hmm. or something like that. So I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, these guys, you know, they can They're go screwed. home now. Yeah, exactly. So they prayed, and I pulled out the DMG, and, you know, there's a straight 10% chance. Deities and Demigods. Deities and Demigods yeah. book. Straight 10% chance if you've been very devout. They'd all been devout. I mean, that's why they were there. And then if you were on a mission on behalf of your deity, you get a plus 25%. Oh, interesting. And I'm, and I'm all about the rule of cool. You know, I'm not going to, you know, look, let's make this fun. So fine. 35% chance. They both roll, and they both rolled 35 or below. Wow. And it, it just happened. And that was very fun. That was a lot of fun. It's a one in nine chance of that happening. And it happened. And it was a very epic moment, you know, and it really, and it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So We were talking about that on Twitter. Uh, people are talking about total party kills and, you know, whether it's appropriate or not. And, um, you know, certainly that's an old school way. New Later editions really try to avoid that. You know, the, the, there's not a lot of whole fun of watching everyone re-roll characters. And... <laughs> You know, where it is kind of the, the there has to be that chance, and, and it's very likely. Um, and, but, you know, if you don't have that razor's edge, to your point, if there isn't that one in 2,000 chance, or, um, you know, th- that's when you get this amazing roll. You can't get a one in 20 or one in 100, right. uh, save yourself, or some spell goes off. You can't do that if, if your uh, characters are not in danger. And so I think that's when people, that's the memorable moments when, the gnome steals from the black dragon and survives or whatever the case may be. And so that's, you know, if it's just all predetermined, um, you know, it's just I, I know how much skill there is. I know how much hit points they have. It's, it's a, 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 you know, fate complete, then it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. So I think that's what's so cool about having these settings. And, and I, my comment to the really, and I didn't run it, but I read it, is there's just so much detail, which is, was that common uh, for everyone to do, because I think that definitely is more of a UK, when I look at the modules and the material, there is detail that we didn't have here in the States. I mean, oh, no. we thought the Village of Hamlet had a lot of nonsense material, you know, how much copper pieces were <laughs> underneath the bed. You guys, and especially, Daniel, your work, you have how many rooms are on each floor, again, what, uh, who's there, their, uh, not only their alignment, but their predisposition for every character, their backstory. It's just 
uh, you know, you could be, you could run a whole campaign of it. So, is, was that kind of the norm for the type of what you saw around there in uh, in the eighties? I think there was a fairly obsessional flavor to a lot of UK writing at the time. Okay. Um, yeah, I think it's to make the unbelievable believable. Yeah. Um, detail is is often the thing that that conveys it. Verisimilitude, um, right? Isn't that the term? Yeah. Verisimilitude. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, and. If you're you're trying to show what a thing is like and also what it's not like, then then the detail uh, can be telling. Um, and and kind of once you start, it's very difficult to stop. So once you've detailed one shop, then you kind of think, okay, <laughs> better do them all. Yeah, and, and, yeah. I mean, it just it's so helpful because we get that. Well, and, and unfortunately. Some players, when you give detail, they think something's more important than it really is. Well, sure. You know, if you say there's a candle on the table, ooh, there's a candle. What's what the candle do? Why is it there? I you expect know, the candle. I search for secret traps in the candle. So we, we, we have players candle. who, if you give descriptions, they assume you're describing it because it's important. So one of the things we've, I've had to do if we use some of these modules is to say not everything is uh, right. important. It's more of just to pr- convey the... The, just the flavor of it, as opposed to saying you're in your traditional medieval tavern, whatever that means, and yeah. people kind of just fill in the blanks uh, uh, mentally. Um, because I, you know, I don't know. Some people have are not as read. I think, especially ne- later generations, they don't have the history of reading. They don't have the baseline of Moorcock and and Tolkien and you know all you know uh, Frank Lieber. Yeah. I, so they don't even have the background of it. So you know you have a standard frame of reference that a lot of people have. Yeah. Do you yeah. do you think um, you know that not only was it helpful, is that something that uh, we probably need to start encouraging people again because I, I I don't I don't think you know there's some of their history is either no reading or they've just watched Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings and they only have a a, a, a visual a step not a a literary uh, background. Um, yeah. You know I think that uh, to me is one of the challenges. Yeah, I think that's a very good point because I I kind of wrote down where my influences came from. And it was Lord of the Rings, it was Fafford and the Grey Mouse, it was Conan, it was Elric, uh, it was um, Earthsea, it was Terry Pratchett, uh, and it was Thieves' World. Okay. I think there are um, consistencies, you know, they're, they're different worlds, but they all work in a very similar way. Um, and they don't work by a trapped candlestick. Yeah. You know, they don't work by uh, an unforeseen trapdoor in the in the wizard's tower. Um, they work by big things, big storylines. You know, significant artifacts, larger than life characters. Uh, and I think you know that original Dungeons and Dragons, particularly the dungeons aspect of it, where you you went for room to room checking for traps. Um, you looked for hidden doors, you looked for um, poison needles when you opened something, all that, that small scale stuff, I suppose. Um, I think that, that kind of gets in the way of when you're trying to do big stuff. And um, so there's, 
very little of that in Aurelian. Very little. Um, it's kind yeah. of right, right in front of you. There's people, and they're doing big stuff, and you need to do big stuff too. Yeah, I, I don't think the party search for one secret door or check for one tribe, best I can tell. I may be wrong, but it's really not many. Uh, could you talk a little bit, the sense I get is that, and I want to ask you maybe to compare British gaming at the time versus the States. Now, I understand that you may not be familiar with, with what the culture was over in the States, but the sense I get from British gaming at the time back in the 80s is that it tended to be maybe a bit more grim than o- over here, that we were a little bit more about, you know, the Greyhawk vibe. I mean, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't run Greyhawk and, and use it, so maybe I shouldn't comment. But it, was, it wasn't, a lot of the modules that I'm familiar with over here were, were not that grim. And then the English stuff I'm now being exposed to is more grim. Is, was that sort of, of, of the way you guys did it over there? I think so. Um, more squalor. I think, if you want to think about it, there was a very, very influential um, British comic called 2000 AD. I don't know if you've come across it at all, but if you haven't, it's well worth looking up. Um, That was a a science fiction fantasy comic where Judge Dredd was was a main character. But they had a lot of, of characters in a similar vein, so morally ambiguous, um living in unhappy societies nobody quite on the level um a fight for everything that that was a very strong feeling and politically at the time it was it was a fairly conflicted time as well and particularly in the northeast of england so i think there was that that history uh, to it in that context, and I think that did influence a lot of people. And it strikes me too as almost a bit Dickensian too. I mean, this idea of very interesting characters and the squalor. I mean, I don't know if if, if Dickens had any influence, but it just it seems to be very a lot of it very Dickensian. Yeah, yeah, and literally and figuratively dark as well. So at the moment I'm looking out and it's raining heavily and it's grey and there's a few leaves left on the tree. And it's so it's, 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 sat, it's Saturday, basically. Yeah. Right. And anyway, so it's, that's why we're in Florida here. That's yeah. why when I play D&D in Florida. It's very saw, sunshine. Yeah, it's going to be 81 today Leprechauns here. and yeah. elves and right. hobbits running around. It's, so, so it's a magical place here. Uh, could, you, uh, could you, and I know we're, we're getting along on time here, but I'd really like to hear some of the adventures that you back in the day that you were a big fan of. So I think you had mentioned that you, you would run some, you know, were, were there some in particular? Because I'm always on the search for really good adventures that I didn't know about back in the day. And so I didn't know if there's any that, that come to mind that you remember running that you were a big fan of. Uh, it tended to be the shorter ones that, that we played. Um, just because we didn't have a great deal of time. Yeah. Um, we, we had a very long-running campaign, but that, that was never published. Um, uh, there's one called The Demon's Mind, which was published in a fanzine, uh, and I, I liked that one very much. I can't remember who, who actually wrote it, although it was one of, the, one of the people who published quite a bit. 
the, the demon's mind. And I like that very much because of its um, uh, its visions. That it was it was a um, an impossible landscape where people had to achieve unachievable things. Uh, and I enjoyed that one. Uh, Barroom Brawl, I don't know if you ever... I, so yeah, I mean, I, I've seen it, yeah, in, in, in White yeah. Dwarf. In White right? Dwarf, that, yeah. that's good fun. Um, <laughs> and, and I'm a particular fan of Albie Fiore's uh, you know, uh, yeah. Halls of Tis and Thane, I mean, in particular, I know the, the Lichway. I think those two, along with Aurelian, I think the Lichway and the Halls of Tis and Thane are probably considered... Uh, the best uh, of the lot by many people uh, from White Dwarf magazine. It's kind of you to say so. Yeah, so, did it's you, true. Did you They're play saying so. A couple of uh, comments from the chat. Um, one, did you play any other games? Was it just Dungeons & Dragons? Did you do RuneQuest or uh, Call of Pretty Cthulhu? Much. Pretty much. Um, I got RuneQuest, got Chivalry and Sorcery. Okay. Because uh, that, that was really on the medieval minutiae uh, so I quite like that but nobody else did so we, we never played it um, did a little bit of RuneQuest um, they were the main ones uh, I think it took so long to learn how to do it <laughs> that kind of once you're inv invested into learning AD&D that was that was pretty much it. You just didn't have the uh, the headspace. That's me. Yeah, exactly. That's where I'm at. That's why I'm still playing one e. And that's what's interesting because you uh, you know some of the people who've come back. It's um, I don't know if this is an appropriate thing, but it's almost like they were married and then they've now they're single and they just are trying all different kinds of games. And I and I get it. I, we played Paranoia back in the game, uh, um, and and actually uh, we played. Top Secret, a lot of the TSR ones. We knew about RuneQuest, played Pendragon, which was an interesting uh, take because it was like no spells. You could you die, you don't get to a new character, you're the son of whatever, but it really we fell back to it because it was the familiar and it was uh, it was the you know the lingua franca that everyone knew. If you were gonna start a game, um, a lot of people, if it was sci-fi or Star Frontiers, Traveler we played, um, but it, those were all tangents to the core game, which was Dungeons and Dragons. Was there a big uh, tournament environment in uh, the UK at the time? Because one of the questions no, we had, yeah, they, no, not, not, not in certainly not in in the northeast. Okay, uh, um, they did they did have a convention down in London, and um, went along a couple of years. Um, that was a one day affair, a few hundred people. Is that uh, game? Was that Games Day? Yes, so yeah. put on by Games Workshop, yeah. um, and people would would play and during it, but it wasn't um, wasn't a tournament um, in the in the sense that you would get a, an overall winner at the end of the day or anything like that. Not that I was aware of anyway at the time I went along. So, um, so many of the classic TSR modules came out of tournaments. Yes, yeah. they were yeah. tournament based. So the question. Uh, was the um, we had was was this even a thought of doing a tournament? But that really wasn't the culture that you had at the time. That wasn't the scene that they had there. No, yeah, no. not certainly not the scene I was in. Okay, yeah, you, know, you had a group of you know, four to six people, and then they very much played um, as a group, uh, and and then didn't 
didn't really interact with other groups. So it was quite a um, insular, I suppose, um, yeah. approach at that time. And you, you just didn't have a way of knowing about people. It's, um, you know, there was no internet. Right. Um, there was no message boards. There was um, short messages in the back of, of White Dwarf. Anybody interested in role playing, <laughs> come along to the pub at nine o'clock on a Wednesday. Yeah. Um, that, that was kind of it. That's truly amazing. I mean, because looking through, I started when I, I've told Dan this, we would get Dragon Magazine. And, and if it, uh, I don't know what it was, it, what my, my young brain was, if it wasn't a TSR product, it was a, a knockoff and it wasn't legitimate. And, and so we didn't, I didn't even pay attention to most of the adverts in the magazines. But going back through it, exactly, it's, this was the, you know, the White Dwarf was the way people communicated. You see, they had, yeah. The, yeah, hey, we want to play. And just think about that. It's like we have Meetup yeah. now. We do it online. And you can find people instantly. You can play online now. They have virtual tabletops where people are playing all over the world. One of our players is you know, going to do, uh, one of our uh, listeners, he had to leave because his Japanese, he's, a, he's someone from, from the UK, lives in, in Japan now, runs a game in Japanese. And so he had, he had to leave to do that. So, but yeah, back in the day, it's like, hey, we're going to meet at this pub on, you know, and, and what do you do? You show up and you hope someone's there. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you put it in two months before and you show up. That's just amazing. It's crazy. And, and what's interesting about it, so I was going through the White Dwarf issues to, you know, because I was trying to reconstruct Daniel's timeline. That's right. And what's amazing is... Better than I could. Well, well, well now you know. I can send this to you. That's um, right. Is that um, is the, the, the issues are incredible. There's so many. I'm, I'm going through these, and there's so many interesting things in there. So many interesting monsters. Of course, many monsters from the Fiend Factory, of course, end up in the Fiend Folio, but many did not, which are very interesting ones. Gary Gygax is writing articles. Yep. So Gary Gygax's writings is not only appearing in Dragon Magazine, it's appearing in White Dwarf. I didn't realize that. People like Roger Moore, who we are big fans yep. of, um, is publishing in there. Jim Ward is publishing uh, things in there. So White Dwarf was well-known by you know the, the famous people that we know over here in the States, and they were contributing uh, to that magazine. It's very cross. I think at, it took a while, but the, the cross, it's almost like music or anything else. It came, bounced back and forth and each iteration provided a flavor to it that, um, that the net result was better than the original. Right. Yeah, and so I think, yeah, Jim Ward was on Carlos's podcast uh, a few right. weeks ago and, you know, we're just very fortunate to have you on. And I know it was, I don't know if, so what did you think when Daniel, e uh, when Dan emailed you? What was your, uh, what was your, what was your quick reaction to that? Um, well, I, I have had emails in the past oh. asking me, are you? Because <laughs> um, um, Aurelian got republished as a, a PDF a few years ago. And the, the guy who republished oh. it asked, got in contact um, Asking Cal if I'd get permission. Yeah. Um, so I said Calvary. I wasn't the right holders. <laughs> um, but uh, so it's, it's, it wasn't kind of totally unexpected. Okay. Um, a podcast was totally unexpected. Um, so that's, that's kind of been a, a novelty, a very nice novelty. Thank you very much. Oh, um, we're so happy to have you on. Yeah. Um, I think I was, I'm surprised that it's as popular again. Um, as it as it was you know, back in the day, and uh, so that's a nice surprise. Uh, 
Are there new people playing over in the States? Do you get young, <laughs> young people? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, we can, so we can speak for ourselves. So, you know, Dan and his friend Ed um, basically, you know, wanted to play. He was going to GaryCon, which is, you know, a, primarily an old school convention in Wisconsin where, you know, Gary Gygax started the, started the movement, if you want to call it that. Um, used Meetup, which is an online kind of you could do arts and crafts and set up for D&D. We went from two or three people. I saw him two months later, and, and Dan and I have kind of managed the thing. And we have, you know, 300 members. We have probably 30 or 40 active members and now people are bringing their sons to the events you know my teenage son plays he'll play fifth edition which is the latest but he, he'll play with me tomorrow um mm. one of our other players so it's generational uh where we get it we will see a lot of people who uh we play in this kind of room in the center of the game local game shop people will walk mm. by and they're like you're playing first edition and they'll sit there for 10 or 15 minutes and sometimes mm. they'll join up um you know, I I think I think it's good that people embrace the edition that they have. I don't I don't think it's a, a terrible thing that first edition is played by older people uh, because people need to have their game or else it's going to die. The hobby can't continue to be first edition, but there is an idea of we play this because it's the game we know, and we can yeah. convey it well and give an experience uh, to that. So we've got people on all the, as soon as I said that all of them are. Saying, oh yeah, we uh, we've got folks who play first edition who are younger. You know, they're in their thirties and they started with first edition. I I think there's something about the game uh, that's gravitated people towards it, but it's certainly a pr- fraction of it. You know, most of us shockingly look like us who play this, which is 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 something we run an open table. We basically allow anyone to play. One of our dear friends, Vic, he runs an open table, and if you look at his Facebook. He has a very eclectic mix of people there. I think the, the number one thing is people need DMs. If you have DM, if you build it, they will come. Uh, mm. more, of, more of this, the addition and what it is. And even though it's a lot easier to play now, the choice makes it almost a, a, another problem. You get people who are more flighty. They're not as committed to a longstanding campaign. Uh, it's just time constraints are very challenging to come up with so I run a campaign every two weeks, and it's you know it's a time constraint for for all the folks. But yeah, we're, we we get uh, people in there, a lot of folks in there. Do you agree with that? Dan? Yeah, I do. I think that you know, so obviously people who grew up with one e, some people stayed with it because they didn't like the later editions. People who are coming back to it are often coming back. At, they they decide to play one e because it's what they know. And I think I don't think nostalgia is a bad word. I mean, I readily admit that I like playing one e. Because I like kind of going back to the '80s for a little bit and a little bit of escapism. I enjoy that. Um, I think that the young, the younger players that I've experienced typically were the kids. It's so the dad played one E and he's got his son there playing it. I, I do think one of the difficulties with introducing one E to the new generation is number one: why would I play first edition when there's a fifth edition? It's the new edition. And another problem I think with some of the younger players is is that the sense I get, and James could probably speak just a little bit more because you have a little bit more familiarity. Uh, with 5e than I do, uh, I don't know if I'm, I don't mean to insult you, um, is, that, is, that fi- <laughs> is that first edition is surprisingly deadly for a lot of the younger gen. They don't, they don't realize, wait, I only have three hit points? Wait, my mm-hmm. car- this, is the first ep- this is the first session, and wait, my character's dead? And, you know, us grognards were like, yeah, 
what's the problem? Yeah. Of course, start rolling up a new character. And so I think I think that's part of the problem. I, we have one player, John, who he said he thinks really the only people well suited for one E are people who played one E back in the day because they understand it's meant to be hard and deadly. And you're not you're not a superhero. Yeah, I think there's yeah, and, and people are commenting on the chat, which um, you know, I think the there are two schools of thought. There are there are players who went through the computer games. I played Baldur's Gate, you know, when we didn't play anymore, and played a lot of those, searching for that original uh, feel of that. The, the the game has progressed where you went from very simple classes that had limited capabilities, and it was mostly cerebral and interaction and the DM and the player would adjudicate what they wanted to do and there wouldn't be a specific, I do this, to where everything was a skill tree where you'd pick up skills overall. So I think the biggest impediment for people who play newer editions is they're used to having this panoply of skills and abilities even at early level. They're more like a superhero that gets better and better as opposed to the zero to hero. I think there's a lot of people who are okay with the deadly version. You know, there's a... Uh, a, a, a stream of video games like Dark Souls, which is brutal. I mean, it's it's deadly. You have to restart. You can. There's people who play hardcore where they get one life. It's just they're the minority. They're they're almost like we have to find those people who are, embrace that. But because most people are used to the oh I die so what big deal we come back or I've got so many abilities, um, and that's really the biggest challenge uh, for new players is they're so used to the computer games. Where if it's not on my computer screen, the option talk, attack, you know, mm-hmm. parlay, what do I do? We well, can do anything, and they sit there kind of in this mm-hmm. state of I don't know uh, to accomplish. So I think from a creative perspective, there's people there. It's just it's it's a definitely a barrier to folks because you know it's the whole backstory versus non backstory. There's we didn't do a lot of backstories. We let the game develop the backstory. Your your characters here story came out of going to Aurelian and facing the cleric. It wasn't, uh, you know, I'm the third cousin of the king. And, I, you know, you have the better story before the game itself is, 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 is some of the things that are happening here. But I don't think it's all or nothing. I just think that's the trend. Well, what's interesting, so one of the persons online had pointed out that, you know, that he was a little hesitant to use Aurelian, uh, the rising, not use Aurelian, use the rising of the dark scenario, because at the end of it, you're basically your heroes. But I think as Daniel points out in the adventure, you know, yeah, you're heroes and you're given this land to the North Aurelian, but this land has got some real problems. It's not it's not the most valuable territory, right? It might be a burden to have this. It's the gift that keeps on giving. It's gotta be cleared out. I mean you're a hero of Aurelian folks. Have you looked around? It's you know, this is I think this Actually, I think it's a wonderful. Yeah. I would. Have, I, I am very anti. Oh, you're the hero. Everyone loves you. But I would have no problem with having that happen using Aurelian because I can just imagine all of the difficult challenges now. It's like you said. It's the gift that, that doesn't stop giving. Yeah. It's like you've got a lot of adventures now where you're struggling. You think you're the hero, but boy, it's not. It's not going to be easy. So, so Daniel, I, I know, we, we, again, thank you for coming on, and, and we've gone uh, probably as longer than you ever thought we would. What, do you play any games now? It's just completely separated from not only the hobby, but... Uh, no, no, I don't play anything. So yeah. you, and so you, is it fair to say then that in 1984 or so, when you stopped, you basically, it was a hard stop. You were done. Yeah, pretty yeah. much, pretty yeah. much. Baldur's Gate... 
for a bit and then that was it. Family life took over. Well, very good. Well, yeah. now that you're, I'm sure you're, not to presume your age, but is the, uh, you know, that's, we, we were that way too for decades, raising kids and, um, you know, life. And, and, and we just felt instead of it being a part of our life that we, that was, you know, of the 20s or teenager, that there was a lot of value in, in the camaraderie, the social interaction. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, I've, I've met great friends again. We ran a convention uh, last in October where we just, it was not just, um, you know, it wasn't just nostalgia. It was, there's value in the shared story. You know, that there's that theme of, we're, we're meant to be sitting around the fire telling stories kind of uh, thought. Um, so again, I'm sure, you know, not that we are the largest podcast, contrary to what it says on Chartable. But we we're, the, we're the Aurelian. We're like the decay. Well, we <laughs> were never great, though. That's right. We were never great. <laughs> we just started this decayed started state. Well, maybe we'll like rise to like, maybe we're like the pre-Aurelian great days. That's we're right. heading that way. We're heading that way. We're going to discover gems and all that. Well, yeah, fire or something like that. Um, I, I'd like to. Well, even Aurelian started as a, a bunch of hovels. Exactly. That's right. so that's we are the hovels of, that's our of podcasts. Thing. The hovel of podcast, yeah, uh, the right. hovel of D and D podcast. That's right. I do. Before I forget, before we let you go, because I did want to ask this, because somebody asked this online. I think it was on Dragon's Foot. Is did you ever develop anything beyond that region of Aurelia that was you included in White Dwarf? I, my sense is the answer is yes, because I think you made some reference to that. So is is there in your attic? Is there a is the Aurelian is, is area? The Cimmerillion of uh, the Cimmerillion of Aurelian. Aurelian. The Cimmerillion. Sorry. Is, is is there more in the attic? There, there was a world. Um, well, I suppose there is a world up in the attic. Um, and Aurelian was part of that. It was very, very much derived from Conan's work or the work of um, Howard. Yeah. Um, and Rillian was at the, the top leading into the, the icy wastes. Uh, and then as you went down, there were different continents. Um, a lot of it never really got fleshed out, but uh, it's, it's a city and a world. So there are, there are other parts. And did you take, did your player characters go through Rising of the Dark? Did you run Rising of the Dark for your group of players? Parts of it. Okay. Parts of it. We didn't. My characters, or the the characters in our group by then, were about eighteenth level. Oh so wow! It was wow. Far far um, beyond what Aurelian was designed for. Um, it was it was designed for kind of low to medium level characters. One of the things I found is that once characters get too good. Once you really are heroic, it really gets a bit boring. Yeah. Um, you need the jeopardy. You need the the chance of it going wrong and you dying to keep it interesting. Um, and then the, the more powerful characters get, the more artificial the situations have to be to put them into true jeopardy. Um, so I, I kind of always found five to seven is, is a good level to to be capable, but uh, um, uh, damageable, unkillable. Yes. 
Well, uh, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. I'm actually updating our Twitter. Are you on social media? Can people reach you some way? Or is it just you want us to... uh, Not at all on social media. You're a smart man. (laughs) You're a very smart man. It is basically the... I'm not sure what the equivalent of the Rubik's Cube of just a time waster that... But, you know, it's... it's, uh, But we we do it because... um, not because we have to. I think there is some value to it, but th- I'm not sure the va- the time invested is worth it. But um, well, thank you for People your time. People can email. People can email me. Okay, um, well, if you give us that, we'll put it in the show notes, and people can do that. Just, I, I, just the email that you contacted me on. Okay. Just, we'll put that out there. Well, actually, we'll have them email us. We don't want to put that out there for folks just in case they want to know your hours when you're home. Uh, so they can get into your attic. They may claim to be bat uh, exterminators. Yes, <laughs> that's right. We're here. We're here. We have a bat problem. We're here. We have a bat problem. We're going to the bat. solve that uh, for you. Uh, out of the box. How much is it going to cost? Oh no, it's a service. It's part of the uh, part of the uh, government service to d- deal with rabies. I mean, and- can you imagine what's in that box? He may have like the Holmes edition polyhedral dice. That's right. They're going for like a hundred bucks or whatever, right? Starstone, hundreds of dollars. Are you trying to? Get his house broken no, into. No, I'm sorry. I, he has here. nothing up there but trash. It's just just it's trash. trash. There's nothing there. He's got the uh, the first hundred uh, copies of White Dwarf. See, he's uh, he's inviting. Yeah, that's probably. <laughs> he's inviting <laughs> them. There's fifty copies of the dragon. Um, can I? Wow, can I can I list for you things I'm looking for so you can check? <laughs> just certain British modules I'm still yeah, Chris, you know, it's not too late for Christmas. So, yeah, if you come uh, across something called No Honor in Southport, so I just I'm just throwing that out there. I'm not suggesting so, you. One last thing from our folks out on the internet: Did you when you ran, if you recall, were there house rules or rules that you sorted out and said, "No, I can't," uh, you know, deal with them the way one he was written, or did you have a house rule that you were particularly fond of? If you recall back in the day, don't argue with the dungeon master. We like that rule. That's a good way to end this. Don't argue with the dungeon master. Nobody followed the rule, but uh, that was my favorite one. That's right. That's right, Paige. Go ahead. I think it's, you know, one of the great attractions was it is a social game. Right. You know, you do play it with other people. And, um, I think that shared story was always an important part of it for me. Um, so the story and uh, the system. But if it came, push came to shove, then the story over the system. Well, it's kind of watchword. And can I? I know. Sound, one more question. Sound like a sure. So, can you describe how it, how it feels to you to know that out there in the world? The city of Aurelian really sort of lives, right? So people are playing. So just two weeks ago, you know, in a little gaming shop in Florida, the city of Aurelian was alive. And the characters you created right. are interacting with things. And, 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 and that's happening and has been happening, uh, unbeknownst to you probably. It, uh, how does that – must I would think that would make you feel, feel pretty good. It, it's very nice. I think uh, one might say in a, an understated British way. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good for the British. Yeah, that's pretty. That, that's a lot, that's right. right? For the British, right. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really quite unexpected. I was uh, very surprised when you got in in touch. Um, I had a, a patient once um, who uh, 
when I went to see him for the first time, said, I've interneted you. You're quite famous, aren't you? And then he paused and then he said, in a small way. <laughs> oh. And then he paused again and he said, yes, in a small way. So I think being famous in a small way is really quite nice. Right. So thank you very much for your contribution to it. No, well, thank you, Dan. And, and that's, you know, I think uh, that's, a, that's a nice way to end it in that um, I don't think you did these submissions. I mean, obviously, there's when anyone who makes art, and this is a creative process, you, you have to have some vanity because you're assuming by submitting it that people are going to like it, that you have a unique way of taking it. But, it's, but it wasn't the motivation of it. You have to have enough to overcome laziness and, and you know the fear of rejection and all these other things. So thank you for taking that risk because um, you know, a lot of people have enjoyed this and it also inspires people to say, hey, we could do this as well. I think a lot of folks in D&D or even in role-playing, they are consumers of it. You know, we have players who are very passive and um, it's always good when we have people go, you don't have to just consume things. You, this is a collaborative thing that you can develop for it. So, Well, you know, and just, and it's probably obvious, right? Because I'm clearly a fanboy. Uh, it, it's, it's just so good. It's so good. It's so yeah. different. You know, I think Gary Gygax once said, you know, for every 10 modules, only one is really worth using. And I think that's often true. Um, and it, it just stands out. It just has so much flavor. It's just so good. Um, and you know, what's interesting is, I think the year after you got out of the game, in 1985, you're publishing a book. I, you can find it on Amazon, I think. So it's pretty amazing. And I said that to my wife because I was, I was doing this research late last night. And I turned to her and I said, okay, the chronology I got is in April 19, April 1984, Daniel Connellerton is publishing an article on clerical spells right. for Dungeons and & Dragons. And the next year he's publishing a book on medicine, yeah. um, and she turns to me. She says, "Well, because he's brilliant." And yeah. I'm like, "You know, well, yeah, that's that's pretty clear." So it, it, it's pretty pretty impressive, um, and it's always nice when 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 one of the old players of D and D has gone on to be very accomplished, because we can always then say, "Look, right. people who play D and D are smart people, right?" right? And, and, and we've we, been successful. We weren't sacrificing goats, and that was <laughs> and it, we were, so. yes, we were not satanic. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. If you uh, ever are so inclined to. Uh, Want to chat it up? I'm sure others who have uh, who will listen to this, they may hit you up because you are a wealth of information and appreciate the background and story. So, thank you for your time today, sir. Thanks, Dan. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. All right, it's been a great pleasure. Keep in touch. We, we will. We shall. We shall. Thank you. Have it's a good been a day. Treat. Thanks, Daniel. All right. Bye bye. Okay. Cheerio. This is Big Production. All rights reserved.